Tonight, why the key for investors is calm as war rages in the Middle East. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Michael Coates, who's in for Steve Ruby. So, yeah, we all know what's going on in Israel. It's it's literally their version of 9-11. And I, I don't want to, you know, say, well, it's only about money, because it's a lot more than money that that we need to be concerned about. But there is a, an economic impact, and, and this show is called Simply Money, and that's why I want to bring in Allworth Chief Investment Officer Andy Stout. Andy manages billions of dollars from right here in Cincinnati. Hey, Andy, there's a lot of concerns about the war in the Middle East having global economic consequences. Get, help give us, break it down for us, help give us an idea of what the economic impact is uh, from the war in in, uh, the Middle East and how it potentially could or maybe will not expand into more global consequences. Yeah, the risk, the real risk is it spreading into more of a regional issue. And that's what was uh, causing investors to position defensively last week. So there was a lot of uh, purchasing of bonds, safe bonds like treasuries, because yep. people were worried about that. There was concern that uh, Israel might attack Iran because of Iran's supposed uh, involvement. And if Israel would actually like strike Iran's nuclear facility, I was seeing estimates where oil could, you know, jump up to $150 yeah. a barrel, something oh like that. So those are just, you know, really, really big numbers. I mean, fortunately today, uh, there appears to be some relief regarding that and the concern that this, that it will not become a regional uh, conflict. And that's why, you know, stocks got off to a, a really strong start today. But from an economic perspective, Steve, uh, the GDP for Israel is $522 billion. This is data according to the IMF. I know there's different data from like the World Bank and okay. uh, some other mm-hmm. institutions, but the IMF has Israel as the 29th largest country in the world in total in terms of uh, economic output. Uh, that's about two uh, half a percent of total worldwide GDP. So very little impact from a global perspective. And when you look at Israel's own economy, yes, they're going to be affected by this. There's no question about that. But in terms of how uh, U.S. is connected with Israel, I mean, we do trade with them. From their perspective, we Mm -hmm. are their largest trading partner. However, from our perspective, they're, again, number 29 on the list of uh, all countries that we trade with. So it's not going to really impact the U.S. economy, not really going to impact the global economy. The risk is what I led with, that it does become something more regional and it impacts the energy complex or the oil market. So even if Israel doesn't attack uh, Iran, which is probably a low probability event, uh, in, in all honesty. Uh, but even if they don't, there are still other risks because we could sanction Iran, uh, and that could take some oil out of the uh, the global economy, and that could cause prices to go up as well. So there's a lot of moving pieces a there. A lot of moving pieces, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, worst case scenario, Andy, what happens if this war just gets prolonged and keeps going on longer than we expect it to? Well, if that happens, just prolong. I think it becomes kind of like the Russia-Ukraine, where we thought it would be over a lot sooner, and it's obviously still going on. 
but I don't, I mean, I think people just get desensitized to it to a degree. And there will be some effects on the margins, uh, especially in the oil market and especially in, in certain areas of, you know, the Middle East. And they'll probably spill over a little bit into Europe. And I can already, you know, if you just think about it, you can think about the second order effects of what it means for the Russia-Ukraine war, what it means for China in terms of U.S. geopolitical positioning. I mean, there's so many ways this can go. But I mean, sadly, it'll probably just people will just get a little bit desensitized to it more than anything else and very little economic impact. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Michael Coates. And if it's Monday, we must be talking to Andy Stout. Andy's the chief investment officer of Allworth uh, Financial and manages billions of dollars from right here in Cincinnati. So, Andy, I want to switch gears a, a little bit. We had a lot of uh, numbers come out last week. Um, in particular, the consumer price index. There were, there were some other inflation indexes uh, that that um, uh, came out with their September numbers also, but um, kind of a mixed bag. I, I mean, not exactly what we were hoping for on the inflation front, but not that bad either. How do you, first of all, give us the numbers that came out last week and, and how do you gauge, you know, what the numbers mean at this point? So consumer inflation or CPI, they did come in a bit higher than expected when we look at total inflation, at least on a month over month basis, where it rose 0.4%. Economists were looking for a 0.3% rise mm-hmm. there. On the year over year basis, uh, instead of <clears throat> inflation dropping, which is what economists were looking for from 3.7 down to 3.6, it stayed at 3.7%. So <clears throat> those are the numbers that we're seeing. And it, obviously it's more elevated than uh, you know what the Federal Reserve wants to see, uh, but that's just a headline number. So obviously we're going to dissect the data and look at it a little bit more closely. There's a couple of good things in there. However, the, the negatives did outweigh the positives when you look at the overall report. The one thing that really stuck out is the trend in inflation. Now, while the 12 month change is moving down clearly, and we're well off our peak of, you know, 9.1% back in, uh, you know, last middle of last year. However, if you look at the, like the three month rate of change or the annualized three month change, mm-hmm. it actually increased from August uh, to the September number uh, up to, uh, you know, 3.1%. So, you know, it's certainly moving in the, the, the wrong direction from that perspective. Another thing, another couple of other items that I, I didn't like in there were the shelter inflation uh, data. Now, shelter inflation is the biggest component of CPI. It's about 35% of total consumer uh, spending. And it, it accelerated to 0.6% on a month-over-month basis. That's its highest reading since last May and double what it was in August. So that's not moving in the right direction there. We'll see if that's a, an aberration or not, or if it will just revert back to the lower readings that we've been uh, getting used to. Now, so we have shelter, we have just other services as well, Was also, also came in pretty hot at 0.6%. So the good news, core goods. Uh, that actually, we saw deflation. That actually decreased by uh, 0.4%. And food was relatively steady at 02 So we got good news on food inflation and goods. However, services and shelter, far from ideal. And it's not something the Fed wants to see. So what I'm hearing here, Andy, is you know not everything's great, not everything's bad, but we're kind of in that final push to get back to normal levels of inflation. 
Yeah, at this point in time, what would we need to do or see to get back to normal levels? It's going to take time. I mean, there's no easy, swift answer for it. I mean, the trend is moving lower. It's Mm -hmm. not going to move in a straight line. We're going to have months like we did in September, where it is a little bit higher than what people were expecting. Well, however, we'll have months that move in the other direction. If you look at the big picture trend, it's at least moving in the right direction. So that is good. And the Fed knows that. And I say it's going to take time, uh, not just because of the level we're at. And you just don't go there overnight back to that you know, 2% magical level. Uh, however, uh, when you think about the... W- the effects on what actually moves inflation lower, you know, the higher interest rates that the Fed has employed over the past year and 10 months, roughly, where we've raised rates more aggressively than any other time in the past. A lot of that's gotten to the economy, not all of it. I mean, it, it can easily take, you know, 12 months or so for a rate hike to be fully felt in the economy. So there's still a, Still some effects. These are called lagged effects. And the Fed had been hiking up until just a a couple of months ago. And even their last hike, it's nowhere close to being in the economy. So we're still going to be feeling a drag from those hikes in the not too distant future. And that should help to bring down inflation. And the Fed knows that. They know their hikes aren't fully in there. So they're aware of that. They're watching that. And they also see a few other things like interest rates being high in general, like longer term interest rates and that's kind of doing the work for the fed as well so they don't maybe they don't have to hike as much because the market has longer term rates higher so so you think they're done raising rates at this point or november december meetings maybe we'll see another rate hike i would not be surprised if they're done i would yeah i I think it's more likely than not that they are finished raising rates but of course a lot will depend on a few things uh you know if we have a government shutdown yeah they're definitely uh done Uh, (laughs) yeah you know if uh uaw strikes keep going on indefinitely they're probably definitely done as well uh so if you look at where the market's pricing it there's like an eight percent chance that they'll hike on november 1st so that's pretty much not going to happen especially since there's no real meaningful economic data between now and then that would change the feds view to make them want to hike and if you look at just what the market's pricing in for the remainder of this interest rate cycle it's only about 34 percent chance that they hike one more time so the market thinks they're done and i do think that's probably more likely than not i mean data can change but based on what we see today it seems unlikely that they're going to have any more hikes Okay, br- briefly, uh, what are we looking at this week? Anything coming up? Yeah, we have a few uh, big economic releases, uh, and I'll I'll just list them off. Uh, you know, the big one is probably the retail sales. That's going to show us how strong the consumer okay. is, how how the consumer has been hanging in there. And as far as I mean, it's going to be data for the third quarter, uh, September specifically. So we already kind of know where the consumer has been in the third quarter, and it's been pretty good uh, overall. <laughs> and it's it's for some one-off events that really just moved the economic no, needle. No kidding. Yeah, the, the Taylor Swift concert, uh, even her, her movie just broke all bunch of uh, <laughs> records over the week. And it's crazy. You saw it. You, you saw it. I know you did. <laughs> I have not seen a movie in the theater in probably a few years, actually. Wow. Um, but speaking of movies, you had the Oppenheimer and the Barbie movie. Yep. Those were blockbusters. Yep. You had Beyonce's concert tour. These were all 
one-time events essentially that are not going to be repeated in the fourth quarter or even the first quarter of next year. So we have a really strong third quarter for the economy. The question is what what happens in the fourth quarter and more yeah. more likely where you could see some weakness might be the first quarter of next year. We'll see how it all all plays out, but there's still a lot of time between now and then. So we got retail sales, we have industrial production, which is a measure of manufacturing. You know, it's kind of interesting on the manufacturing front. And we've started to see a little bit of stability there, especially in a lot of the regional data, like uh, the New York area or the Philadelphia area, or we're starting to, in the Dallas area as well, we're starting to see some stabilization. Nationally, it's still contracting. However, it's not contracting nearly as much as it had been. Uh, so things are moving in the right direction on the manufacturing front. Good. We'll also get some yeah. data on housing with existing home sales, building permits and housing starts. Uh, and uh, there's 21 Fed speeches this week. So definitely get an idea of what the Fed's uh, thinking about. And we have Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell. He's going to be highlighting that list. He speaks on Thursday at the uh, Economic Club of New York. Well, so we're, a lot of we're, data there. We will certainly be paying attention to that. Well, great perspective, as always, from Andy uh, Stout. Andy is the Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Here's here's the Allworth advice. Don't let those headlines spook you. The economy and stock market, they've grown throughout time, weathering wars, financial crises, and more. Just think long term. Coming up next, how long are you going to live? The answer that many men give is way off, and that's not a good thing in the financial world. We're going to explain that next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Michael Coates. Hey, if you can't listen to Simply Money every night, just get our podcast the very next day. And if you've got some friends that could use a little bit of financial advice, tell them too. Just search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, we're going to play the retirement fact or fiction game. Let's see if you can get the answers right. All right. We all know we've got a big company here in town called Procter & Gamble, one of the most rock solid companies. And for that matter, stocks uh, uh, right here, downtown Cincinnati. And apparently it's a pretty darn good place to work also. Yeah, Forbes did a um, survey of companies across the country and across the world, uh, ranking how satisfied people are with their company. And uh, P&G came in at 180 out of 700 companies as the worldwide, best place, worldwide as the best place to work. And actually, if you break it down to the local states, it's number four across the country. And even Children's Hospital raked up there at number five. Um, that's pretty darn good. I, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people in town that we personally know, they work there and and they've got the reputation as being a good place to work. I, I love hearing about Children's Hospital because I know a number of people that work there also. So statewide, we're talking about Procter & Gamble ranking in, in the top couple hundred worldwide. Statewide, we've got we've got a few things to brag about right here. You, uh, Procter and Gamble came in number four mm-hmm. in in the state of Ohio. Children's Hospital here in Cincinnati, number five. You know who number one is? No, who? Dayton Children's Hospital. Oh, there you go. Children's That's surprising. Ho- Children's Hospital knows how to take care of its people. From yes, the sounds of it. All right. So Jim Morrison said it. Nobody gets out of here alive. But there are some generalizations we can make about 
when we are going to go. How, how long are you going to live? And, and, you know, that's something that in financial planning is really important because, you know, if we're, if we're putting a plan together for somebody to not run out of money before they pass away, okay, when do they pass away? And, and that's something you and I both uh, are, are doing day in and day out, making sure people don't outlive the dollars. But the problem is a lot of people have no clue what a normal lifespan is. Oh, yeah. Everyone that comes in the door, I run plans and I'm saying, okay, you're going to live in 93, 95. And they scoff at that. They're laughing. Oh, most people, yeah. 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 They're like, no, no. I'll be not going to make it another 10 years. You know? Yeah. That's so, I mean, usually what we hear. And, and they always get, I don't want to live that long. I don't want to be sitting in the chair. But the reality is we're going to live longer. You know, over yeah. the past, you know, 60 years, medicine has improved and the level of care that we take on ourselves has improved tremendously. I mean, your dad, did he go to the doctor on a regular basis? No, are you kidding me? No, no. no. And I mean, smoke two packs a day, live to be 83. Exactly. Yeah. You know, my grandfather's yeah. 89 years old, heavy smoker, would now be considered a heavy drinker in his day. And he's still kicking along. Well, let, let's talk about the survey that TIAA did. Interesting statistics. Yeah, so they surveyed men and women. And what was interesting was men miss the mark entirely. This oh, we're a, clueless. We're, yeah. we're, guys are clueless. Yeah, this is a women know that. This is a multiple choice question answer. And 23% of them said, I don't know. That wasn't an answer on the survey. So I don't know where they're pulling that from. Pick from. one of these four choices, and they picked. 25% of men picked. Um, I, they picked I, E. I, yeah, I, I, I can't even have a clue when, when I'm given four different choices. But but I, I think it was interesting that most men don't think they're going to live as long as they're likely to live. Yeah, most men picked a lower amount, but the average yeah. is 19 years, which that's covering a ton of people. So yeah, I mean, that's probably a low number in my opinion, especially for you know, a lot of the people we talk to or I've talked to in my life who really take care of themselves. I'll, I'll give you the summary of the study. And, and that's basically the longer you live, the longer you're going to live. I, yeah. I mean, uh, if you make it, uh, if you make it to age 67, there is a better than even chance you're going to make it to 90. If you made it that yeah. far, you may very well live to 90. And that's, that's the issue with running a financial plan. I, I mean, you know, the days of pensions are pretty much gone where, where very few people get a guaranteed payout for life. So, okay, now you've got a 401k you've got to manage. If you think you're going to go at 80 and you're still doing pretty good at 80 and you're out of money because you were spending money like you were only going to live to 80, you've got a problem. Yeah, about only 7% of people have you know, Social Security, a pension, and savings. You know, very few people actually have that. So, you know, the amount of money that you have and planning for that, making sure you don't run out of it before whenever you do pass away is incredibly important. You know, I get people asking me all the time, you know, hey, what if I only live to 80? Yeah, and yeah. outside of, you know, someone having a terminal illness, I never put that out there. And even then, I'll still run a longer scenario for him because you don't know. Well, my answer is, um, what if you have the, the the horrible luck to live a good, healthy, long life? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, well, I mean, I'm be being a little sarcastic, about? but it, it, it just might happen. And, you know, if you spend money so that you're expecting to run out of your investment assets and the income from those investment assets, at, um, let's say by age 80, and you're still going strong at 80, you're kind of out of luck. I, I, I mean, yeah. that's why we start with the rule of 4%. Mm -hmm. What's the distribution rate that I can, I can draw um, more or less indefinitely. And, and, you know, that's why we, we take a hard look at budgeting. Yeah. And there's a balancing act here as well, because you don't want to be sitting here 
just saving money for the future and not doing things in the present either. You know, you're retiring to go enjoy yourself. So it's a balance. Here's the all worth advice. How long are you going to live? Well, you might want to overestimate that one. Your future self will thank you for it. Coming up next, we'll break down the major misconceptions people have about Social Security so you don't get trapped once it comes time for you to get benefits. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Michael Coates. If we had a nickel for every time somebody asked us about Social Security, well, we'd have a lot of nickels and I could probably retire tomorrow. <laughs> it, 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 Social Security is complex to most people, confusing. Even people in the industry like we are, it, it's, it's confusing. That's the bottom line. But there's some common misconceptions people have, and we want to debunk some of those misconceptions right now. Nationwide did a, a really good study, and, and I was not real surprised by some of the biggest, most common misconceptions. Oh, neither was I. You know, the first one right off the bat was people think that they pay Social Security taxes on all their money, which for the majority of the population is true. Yeah. But after $160,200, at least in 2023, you don't pay any more into Social Security. And, and that's something that surprised me when I first learned about that because, okay, um, if you don't make 160000 you just uh, assume, well, yeah, every dime and I'm paying Social Security tax on it shows up right there on my pay stub. But why do they cut it off at that point with a system that's in trouble? I, I think my my opinion is that's going to be the first thing that they look at when they finally get around to fixing Social Security so it doesn't run out in 11, yeah, 12 years their, from now. You know, yeah, why, why do you cap your income on Social Security? It? Yeah, it's it's the, the so-called 1% that's getting by without paying at least some Social Security tax. I, I would think that's a yeah, gimmick. Since 1983, only 6% of the population has paid over or made over the cap. Yeah. So okay. So that that's that's the most common misconception. Fill me in on a couple of the others. Well, um, one of the big ones is when are they going to change my benefits? You know, people keep asking. You know, at least especially young people, are they going to just cut benefits entirely? You know, and are, are they going to be there in the future? Have you had that question of has somebody oh, asked you to do a plan every day? You know, it's don't, just I'm don't include gonna, Social Security on yeah, my plan. And I'm, I'm always, not getting anything. Yeah, and I'm always no. We're going to include it because yeah. it is going to be there. Forty percent of the population that is their only source of savings, and it is a system that needs to be in place to protect people. Well, I, I think we should talk about okay, what realistically, assuming Washington continues in their dysfunction and don't do anything. Aren't we going to lose all of our benefits? No, it's it's an estimate, but the estimate right now is you'd still get about 78% of what you thought you were getting if they don't fix it. Correct. And as we talked about with the cap limit on earnings, that's a real easy way to make it. But they've been changing Social Security because of these issues for 100 years or so. I mean, whether it's, you know, all of a sudden Social Security benefits are taxable above a certain income, right. pushing back full retirement age, they've slowly implemented these changes it's just much more of a need of okay there's got to be some big changes in the future and they'll make them and they'll fix it but they're going to wait and kick the can down the road because that's what they do politicians don't want to lose their jobs at the end of the day exactly Uh, okay so it's kind of like a pension once you sign the papers it's irrevocable okay that's one of the most common misconceptions i've heard and i don't know of anybody offhand that's actually taken advantage of this 
But the bottom line is, if you're within a year of filing for Social Security benefits and you change your mind, you can change it's, your mind. As long as you pay it back. You got to pay back any benefits. <laughs> They're kind of funny free. that way. Yeah, they don't yeah. give you that free money or rechange yeah. your benefits. So most people don't do it, but you do have a small window to where you can. And here, here's where that usually comes in. Okay, I'm finally retired. I'm getting rid of the stress. I, I'm going to shut down and draw Social Security. And all of a sudden, you get this offer you weren't expecting. It's a yeah, good job, and, and you're not full retirement age. And if you're not full retirement age, you're limited on how much you can make uh, from a new job. Um, otherwise, you're going to have a reduction in benefits. Yeah, so that would be a good amount. reason. I yeah. mean, what, what if you get a six-figure um, job offer after you retired at 64? Yeah. Get your dream job all yeah. of a sudden that you always wanted. But yeah, you've got a small opportunity. Um, one of the other big things I hear people saying is Social Security doesn't increase ever or there's no inflation adjustment which is simply not true well no and people that were drawing last year got a big old cost of living increase because inflation was high yeah, it's tied to inflation so we've had two years now of eight percent increases and we're getting another three percent increase this year you're listening to simply money on 55 krc i'm steve sprovec along with michael coates and we're trying to knock down some of these misconceptions things that People assume with Social Security that just aren't correct. And, and uh, you know, assuming there isn't any inflation uh, adjustment. Yeah, that's what the cost of living increase is every year. And we just learned last week and talked about it on the show uh, in 2024. Expect about a 3.2% increase. Not exactly the 8% that we got the previous year. Okay, so nationwide survey. Pretty interesting. Um, looks like that... Uh, uh, there's other misconceptions also about Social Security. Uh, one of the other big conception, misconceptions I find is that the trust fund is out of date. You know, right now, there are less people paying in the system than originally. And how is that going to impact us in the future? Did, did you know, first of all, Social Security was started in 1935. And the reason that it was uh, benefits were going to be paid out at age 65, that was the age of mortality. Yep. In other words, they set up this system. Um, by the way, there were about 45 employees paying into the system oh for gosh. every retiree. What's about seven now or something? Uh, no, it's two and a half. Two and a half. That, that's oh why it's God. running out of money. Yeah. There, you know, there you had a lot of employees paying into a system for very few people that generally Didn't died by the time they were 65, ready to draw benefits. So, yeah, it was a very solvent system back then. And the numbers have changed in the meantime. We're living longer mm -hmm. and Two and a half people paying in for every retiree means um, it's not going to be as solvent as it was when there were 45 people. Yeah, and it's not a system in. where there's just this giant pot of money. It's a pay-as-you-go system. So everyone working is paying for the people who are collecting. So with Social Security, learn the facts, talk to a fiduciary investment advisor or Social Security experts before you make any final decisions to draw benefits. Here's the all-worth advice. Understanding the nuances of Social Security are very important. So reach out to a qualified professional uh, before uh, with your questions before you draw your benefits. Coming up next, we're going to play some retirement fact or fiction. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Michael Coates. Hey, if you've got a financial question you'd like for us to answer, just click that red button while you're listening to the show on the iHeart app. Record your question. Yeah, come straight to us and we may even have your question on the air. Straight ahead, how would you like to pay less money for a gift card than the card is actually worth? 
Apparently, there's a secret that not many people know about. We're going to tell you about that shortly. All right, Michael, time to play some fact or fiction. I I think some of these questions, and we've gotten quite a few of these from from listeners, they're they're good because some of these are assumptions most people agree with, and and they Mm -hmm. turn out not to be the case. So let me ask you, the so-called expert, fact or fiction, 90% of actively managed funds underperformed passive funds. Fact. Okay. So one of my favorite studies. Let's talk a, a little bit about first, what is an actively managed fund? So an actively managed fund is a fund that where a manager is trying to figure out, okay, where is the best place to be in the market there? You got some pe- smart people saying, let's yep. buy this, let's sell this. Yeah, doing a lot of research, yeah. all, a bunch of moving parts, and they're expensive. Well, and I, I think that's one of the keys on this. And, and you know, I don't, I don't care if I use an actively managed or a passively managed fund. I just want my clients to make money. I, right. I mean, that's the bottom line. But there's an assumption out there that you've got to be in and out of the market. That's yep. what the big money is doing. Well, the big money is mutual funds in, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And these are the smartest of the smart with research staffs galore charging a heck of a lot of money to decide, okay, is today the day to buy Procter & Gamble or sell Procter & Gamble in this mutual fund. And, and it's a surprise that most of these funds, at least consistently, do not outperform the indexes. Just just sitting tight with the Standard & Poor's 500. Correct. And one of my favorite case studies is Warren Buffett actually made a bet against hedge fund managers that okay. he would just invest in the S&P 500 index and with all their you know, fantastic algorithms and things that he would outperform over a 10-year time period. And this is in 2008, when we were in the midst of the biggest recession of all yeah, time. Right. And guess who won out that bet? Right, Go Mr. Ahead. Buffett won by he, he usually leaps does. and bounds. The total cumulative return over just nine years was 85%. These hedge fund manage, managers, 22%. Wow, what That's a difference. insane. What, what a difference. Okay, fact or fiction? Paying off your high interest debt may be your best investment strategy. I would say fact. Yeah, I would too. You know, I can't really think of a reason why it wouldn't be. You know, if you high have have high interest, that's a huge monkey on your back that's just beating yeah. down on you. You're paying all this interest for something, but you know, don't get high interest debt. <laughs> well, uh, credit. Well, yeah, but you know what? Credit cards exist because people use credit cards. Absolutely. A- and and my argument would be if you can't pay it off every month, you need to fix whatever's going on right there because if you're carrying a balance on a credit card, which these days might very well be 22, 23%. 30%. Yeah. Once you pay off that 23% credit card, um, you just gave yourself a 23% rate of return. I yep. can't, I can't get that for no. somebody. I mean, that's I, I'm I'm all for everybody making it a priority. Pay off your credit card debt. So, question to you, see, fact or fiction? If you want financial independence, create a portfolio with seventy percent stock, thirty percent bonds, and then leave it alone. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna call fiction on that. Not because that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. And for some people, seventy thirty is the right mix. For other people, thirty seventy is the right mix. But that's not financial independence. To me, financial independence is. I hate using the B word budget, but you got to know if you know what you're spending and you can consistently receive more income for whatever source, whether you're working or in retirement off of your investments, if you can continuously receive more income than what your spending is, assuming you know what your spending mm-hmm. is, and that's the, the B word, um, that's financial independence. I would agree with that a hundred percent. And 
to go back to this, you know, it's the age old question of how much return do I need? You know, I, yeah. is it 8%? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Yeah. They're all just random numbers. And really it just depends upon what I need to make my life successful. I, I, I've seen a number of plans where somebody says, and you know, they're uncomfortable with risk. Well, with the market going up, I probably should move up to 70 or 80% stock. And, 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 you know, my answer is, well, let's look at your financial plan. And if their financial plan shows a 30% stock mix floats their boat, why should they be uncomfortable and go to 80%? No, never right? chase returns. A exactly. Because by the time you're ready yeah. to chase them, you've already missed out. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Michael Coates, and we're playing your favorite game, Fact or Fiction. All right, so I, I've got one uh, for you, Michael. Fact or fiction, timing the market based on recessions simply does not work. False. Or, no. Fiction. Fiction, yeah, fiction, sorry. Okay. Um, no, I'm a firm believer in time in the market, not timing the market. You don't chase returns or even dec decreases based upon what's going on. Well, the, the question is timing the market does not work. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're saying you you're agreeing with me, correct? That you can't time the market. No. The yeah. You know, what's what's the age old saying? Markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. <laughs> I like that one. It's from 1930. Yeah. Well, and and it's true. I I mean, when you take a look at some of the charts, and and this isn't you know an investment advisor saying don't take your money out, please don't take your money out because then I can't make money off of you. No. no you you look at the 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 studies that are out there that don't have a dog in the hunt and, and they all say the same thing. My favorite is the 10 best days in the market and, and the charts show if you have money invested in the standard and Poor's 500 and I, I don't know of many people, it should be a hundred percent S and P, but this is just, mm -hmm. just to take a look at how the numbers play out. Um, over 25 years, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars in the S and P 500 reinvest dividends, that 100000 over 25 years will be worth somewhere around 600000 and change. Mm -hmm. If you miss the 10 best days, 10 days out of 25 years, it's a little less than 300000 That alone should tell you, don't time the market. And I know from experience, most of those big days tend to be coming off the bottom. I remember yeah. in 2009, we saw some huge days with absolutely no reason they should have been huge days. Yeah. Or just go back to 2020 when markets dropped 30% in a month and recovered the entire 30% in three months. All right. Fact or fiction. Since 1916, the Dow has made new all-time highs, less than 5% of all days. But over that time, it's up over 25,000%. So that's a fact. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a number that just blows me away. Yeah, because what, what, when you started the industry, it was, what, 800 points? Uh, I think in 1981, the Dow was at 960, 970, somewhere in that range. Yeah, and you would definitely say there were still people in the industry saying it's never going to oh, go above 1,000. If, if it hits 1,000, it's going to crash. Yeah. Uh, we, we, there's no reason it should be this high. Yeah. Yeah, and it, the reality is it keeps going up because that's what our economy does. It keeps growing over time. It's not every day. Yeah. But we consistently get larger well, that's, and that's larger. what people miss when you look at an individual stock okay it's never been you know at 120 well maybe it will pull back a little yeah. bit 
but the Dow or the S&P 500 or any of the indexes, it's more than one stock. And as those companies continue to grow and get more profitable, the index is going to increase. It doesn't go on a straight line. And also the index changes over time because there's going to be companies that come and go outside of that. You mean it's not all railroad stocks in the Dow anymore? Nope. Nor does, nor does yeah. JCPenney or Sears make up a huge portion of overall growth. As they should be. Coming up next, a secret to paying less for gift cards than they're actually worth. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Michael Coates. All right, we don't want to make commercials out of this show, but when something unusual is going on with a certain company, we like to point it out. And I know we've talked about Costco a lot in the past, but I just saw something this morning about a pretty darn good deal you can get at Costco that most people, myself included, I'm a Costco member, um, had no clue you could do. Yeah, you can go online and buy gift cards at a fraction of the price. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so you yeah. can get an eight or a hundred dollar gift card to a restaurant for eighty dollars. I and then you, but you have to go online. You can't yeah. walk in Costco to get correct. That. Yeah. So it's one you know their online system isn't maybe as robust as their personal because people like to go in, they grab their giant blocks of cheese and leave. But this is just another classic Costco thing where Costco's earnings are not really based upon their sales; it's based upon membership dues. That's where they make the bulk of their money. So you can go in and save 20% on a restaurant. I got an idea. What if you use a 5% cash back card? Ah, yeah. game in the system even more. I'm thinking all the time. I wonder if you can get a gift card for Bitcoin. That, <laughs> that would be interesting. Get get a discount. It would have to be discounted a lot for me to have to be able to yeah. buy Bitcoin. Or the gold bars that, that yeah. we talked about the other day that you could buy. Now, if you can buy gold bars at a discount... With a cashback card. Oh, now we're on to something. <laughs> Steve, I think you're, we, we need to talk off mic about this. Uh, yeah, but it's not, ju- it's not just restaurants. Um, Southwest Airlines, they, they, you, yeah. you can get a deal with Southwest. $450 for $500 worth of flights. Now, they're limiting you to two cards per member. Mm-hmm. But still, you're saving. If you buy two, if you fly Southwest, normally, you're, you can buy two cards for $100 cheaper on an already discounted airline, okay. that's then, that's not a bad deal. Yep. And then if you're lucky enough, you can go there, get overbooked, and then you can get some more money from Southwest. Oh, I did, I did that. Not Southwest. I did that on a different airline. When Ann and I flew up to Minnesota, we knew it was, we didn't do it because we knew it would be overbooked, mm-hmm. but we weren't surprised. And we jumped at that. We got 600 bucks a piece. Yeah. 600 and, bucks a piece and booked on a flight that was like an hour later. Yeah, and we didn't have to be there. First class, well, you know, maybe not on that airline, but no, no, you no. can definitely get a lot of perks by doing that. Hey, thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about the three key advantages of creating an estate plan. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC. The talk station.